and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond is still on assignment, so I'm his fill-in host again, James Page from MI6. And today we have a cacophony of Bond experts. Uh, we've got David Lee, Bill Koenig, Ben Williams, and for the first time, AJ Chowdhury. So could you please introduce yourself, guys, and tell us where people can find you online? Hi there, this is David Lee here. I run the James Bond dossier. Dot com, and I'm also the author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond and currently lubricating my tonsils with a nice bottle of Australia Dam beer, the beer of Barcelona. Very nice. I'm, uh, I'm Bill Koenig. I run a blog called The Spy Command. I have other websites, and one of them is called The Bond 25 Timeline, in which it's a chronology of the unfolding glorious path of Bond 25. Hi, I'm Ben Williams. Um, I'm a regular contributor to mi6hq.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. And you can find me at double O nothing um, on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, I'm currently enjoying um, some uh, illegal Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> which I shall mute out. Put them away. Um, <laughs> Hi, my name is AJ Chowdhury. I'm the spokesperson for the James Bond International Fan Club at www.007.com. And I'm the co-author with Matthew Field of the 800-page biography of the James Bond films, Some Kind of Hero, The Remarkable Story of the James Bond Films, updated to include The Road to Bond 25 in paperback from the History Press. AJ, how did you follow me? Uh, that, you know, that's a tough one. With great difficulty. I mean, geez, Pringles and some kind of hero. It's uh, it's a tough competition. Well, I, right now I'd prefer the Pringles, quite frankly. But there you go. You know, a red stripe beer is what I'm going to have when we're done. But I never drink on duty. Um, so we occasionally leave some hanging chads on these podcasts, and we've had a couple lately. So I just wanted to clear up some house business before we get on to the inevitable Bond 25 chat. Um, first off, uh, last episode, we just threw in there, where did Dr. No do his doctorate to be Dr. No? And David, you pointed out it was in Milwaukee. That's right. I I took a, a flip through uh, the novel Dr. No, and uh, of course, uh, what else? And um, in the in the spiel that uh, Dr. No gives to Bond um, at dinner, uh, he, he tells him that, uh, that that's what he studied and – sorry, that's where he studied and that he studied medicine. He actually studied uh, veterinary medicine, so uh, he's not technically a real doctor. And since Milwaukee is known for beer, did Dr. No drink a lot? Uh, something to keep in mind. <laughs> I was saying, at least he has his heart in the right place. Oh, no, he doesn't. Oh, very, very, very good, AJ. Very, very good. Uh, um, just for shiggles, I actually found the university that he probably would have studied at and signed um, Julius Snow up to the Alumni Association. Oh, very good. <laughs> Unfortunately, about three, about three days later, they rejected his application and deleted his account. Um, I, I think it might have been the profile picture of Joseph Wiseman that gave it away. Maybe you should have gotten a uh, screen capture from the uh, comic strip ah. with the illustration of Dr. No. That might have... Yeah, I think... Uh, it might have I, I think longer. the other thing is I put Joseph Weissman's date of birth in on the application, and I, I, I really don't think they thought he would still be alive. So I, I bet they, I bet they saw it and they thought, "Oh God, not another one." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, hey, Harry, take take a look at this. Here's another guy, and he's Doctor Julie Snow. <laughs> oh, when will they quit? <laughs> Um, the the other thing that we have hanging over from last week was we did the big reveal that you know Funko Pops are going to be no more uh, in the James Bond universe, and um, that news travelled to the Funko Pops community quite quickly. And in fact, uh, little designer, there's actually some quite active communities online of people who really <laughs> like Funko Pops, and they were very upset with us very upset with us because apparently it was our fault because uh, we're very <laughs> we're very cynical and um, snobs. So. Is, is that a news shock? Yeah. Fans, but, fans um, in yeah. outrage at bad news. You know that must be unique to the Funko Pops <laughs> fan world. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what we will be missing though is apparently they were going to do two Daniel Craig's, one for Casino, one for Quantum. They were going to do Brosnan from Gold Knight 
M, Jinx, Le Chiffre, and Vespa. And they were going to be the next wave that we will now never see, oh. Um, oh. along with a very special limited edition Baron Samadhi. Oh. So what could have been in... Uh, well, they could have done, it should have done a Kananga one, because then it would be like half blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> An inflatable one, yeah. 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 I feel sorry for Funko Pops now. I wouldn't. No, not really. Does anyone does anyone around here collect them? Does anyone around here collect Funko Pops? I, so I, Mark. I, 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 have to, I have one, one my nephew got okay. me. That's a good excuse, yeah. Bill. I, I have one that was given okay, to me as I a like gift. Um, and it was a very – it was a lovely gift, and I'm very <laughs> grateful to, to have received it. And and, um, and and the same with me. I got it from a nephew. Oh, that's so. nice. Okay, that's good. And I, I, it's it's great. Um, but I yeah, and, that, and I feel terrible now because I real I realise the person who's given me this is listening to me <laughs> pay it out every week. Just going, ah, oh, it's fucking shit. But uh, I, it, it was actually a really generous gift. So I just want to, I just want to. Well, and on the on like. the other hand, it now goes up in value theoretically, according to the collector mindset, because no more Funko Pops. It's a finite set, finite number. Yes, I, I, I did check this out online. I think I said this last episode. I, I had a quick look at what uh, what the value was. Now, after we made our announcement, um, um, it it hadn't significantly increased in value, shall we say? So, just to throw a conspiracy theory out there, we haven't taken all remaining stock and warehouse them secretly, <laughs> in the hope that the value goes up to be resold on eBay later. That is not true. I, I know, but the remaining stock was found irradiated. So, you know, I'm slightly suspicious about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, AJ, you're on four, man. <laughs> Um, so hopefully that's maybe the last of the Funko Pops we'll ever mention because it's been, I think we're on episode 12 and that's been pretty much every episode we've talked about Funko Pops. Um, the last thing was um, a couple of episodes ago, we diverged into this uh, theoretical conversation about why Kincaid was still at the house 30 something years later when nobody was living there. Um, and a quick Google search. Uh, I think we'll put this one, uh, doth our caps to probably Purvis and Wade on this. Kincaid's clan motto is this I'll defend. Oh, that's yeah. good. So that's probably where they got the name from. I thought that's a nice little touch. That is good. That's a nice bit of research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. Um, so let's get on to Bond 25 news because there's been um, a lot of stuff in the newspapers, but not a whole lot of real news as usual. Um, and I want to get your guys' take on the filming's going to be cancelled oh no it's fine he's back he just twisted his ankle kind of 72 hour roller coaster of tabloids reporting on other tabloids and what you thought about do, that do you remember when he when he chopped his thumb off i can't remember was it quantum of solace yeah it was quantum yeah um and how that stopped everything completely. do you remember when he couldn't drive a stick shift as well. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and he had his teeth knocked out. That was Christina. Yeah, that's right. His teeth yes. knocked out. I, I, I think the road to Bond 25 is in Rocky at the very least. But I think all these tiny stories, are. I love it when the press record intimately the details of the production, but then say no one around the world is interested. Bond is a moribund franchise. It's irrelevant. Yet every last sinew is reported in great detail around <laughs> yes. the world. I think mm. it's a sign of interest. It's a sign of interest, and it's the, you know, the daddy of franchises coming back home. And, you know, I think there's too much at stake for this to go wrong, you know. <laughs> and Naomi Harris says Bond is coming. Daniel Craig is coming back for another Bond. She says. I, I think. I think what she actually, to, to be specific, said he hasn't said he's not. Yeah. Which is, but he, oh, so he has, though, he's definitely he? coming back then. She was in the room. She was in the room when she when he said that. Yes, <laughs> that's what. It, it was not the most definitive statement, but whatever. <laughs> But would it would it matter even if it was definitive? Because these things always change anyway. And, and plus, you know, does does she speak for him? Is she his agent now? It's like uh, I think she could well be. You know, she's she's certainly the best ambassador they had for Bond Twenty Five at the launch. She was terrific. Mm, I completely agree, agent. 
I did a post about this. I, I declared her she's the ambassador of the franchise now. She's she has succeeded Roger Moore in that oh, role. I, I, um, well, I think Judy. She probably took over from Judy Dench in the sense of you know who who they would put up in front of cameras to speak positively, right? Well, regardless, it's just you know it's like she goes to all the events, whether whether yep. she's filming or not. You know she's there yep. because she's got she's got a great personality, and. Yep. Um, and, and you know what, Daniel Craig, for whatever reason, he doesn't like to do publicity stuff. It was, you know, and, and that's fine. He's a private person, whatever. But she's she's fine. You know, I mean, Naomi's fine doing that stuff. And you might as well have someone who's good at it. So, yeah, hmm. there you go. And enthusiastic and knows her subject. She was she was at sold in the launch, uh, that the Elements exhibit, and then two days later she was opening the Lego store in London with the Aston Martin mm-hmm. in front. So she went from the sublime to the ridiculous, but she was good in both. So Yeah, she's but she's she's also equally enthusiastic about everything that she um, she engages in, which is just wonderful, whether it's Lego or or, or um, Alpine retreat, and she also does. Yeah. She also does commercials where she speaks. I mean, Daniel Craig does like Heineken commercials, but he doesn't speak. He runs around looking dashing, but he doesn't actually talk to the uh, talk in the commercial. Um, you know, mm. so dashing. Well, it's supposed to look that way anyway, but uh, mm. no, I, I, the wear punch. So, but she did the Sony commercial back when Sony was involved in the franchise where she, mm. she gets Bond's Sony smartphone back for him. And it was cute. And you know, I thought reasonably effective. I, I, look, I, I, I actually, I have to say of all of the, I, God, I can't believe we're talking about this, but of all of the, 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 the uh, little adverts that, that had a kind of a narrative to them, I thought that was like the, the best of them really. Um, because it really felt like it was it had an actual narrative to it, and and it didn't kind of skew off into kind of the absurdity. Um, it was just a nice little thing, and she she did well in it. Anyway, well, nothing beats Lois Maxwell's advert for Brook Street Job Agency way back when. So you know <laughs> that was that's had a high end of Bond advertising. You know. A job recruitment agency by Money Penny. That was good. Yeah, didn't did, did Roger Moore do something for the post office as well? He did as well. Yes, you know. I think we should have a mm. podcast, the high end of James Bond adverts. You know, mm. that would be good. James Bond actor adverts or something. You know, that would be good. good. Yeah. We could get spo- we could get so, sponsored by uh, you know. Well, I think the risk of doing that is our potential future sponsor. Uh, for the potential for future sponsorship on this podcast would greatly diminish because mm. we've already written Heineken and Funko Pops off. I think so. And Budweiser, don't forget that. And Budweiser. Okay, right. <laughs> and probably yeah. a clothing yeah. company. Mm. Mm, this red stripe I'm drinking <laughs> is delicious. <laughs> um, so going back to the tabloid coverage, does anybody else want to like – you know, express anything about how that whole went down from the sun coming out with something out of nowhere and then every single outlet copying it and pasting it basically without anybody checking it or getting comment. And then of all places, variety, usually a trusted source of the industry just ran the sun story without any additional information. Right. It's just a summary. That's all it was. Um, yeah, I, mean, well, I, I, I question whether whether filming was actually postponed at all because um, uh, it, it seems like they, they've been they've been getting on with stuff at Pinewood. Um, you know, Daniel Craig doesn't need to be involved in all filming after all. And I, uh, what was he actually in New York because it, it was scheduled? I just want to say something about the mirror because, okay. They they had these photos, and it was supposedly Craig and Fukunaga in a supposedly tense conversation. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You can't really tell. It's like it was tense. It was kind. Of, it didn't look like they were yelling at each other necessarily. Anyway, regardless, in the story, they have these photos, and they make it sound like it's cause and effect. And then when they and then when they talk about the accent, they're really summarizing the, the sun again just they don't mention the sun they have you can tell by the phrasing they, there's like reportedly this it is understood that i mean what 
the translation is we can't we can't confirm it on our own. So, but we don't want to give Sun credit. So, you know, these are weasel words. It's like that's my experience as a professional journalist. I can tell when people are weaseling their way. Yeah, Bill. But this is exactly this is exactly it. You know, you uh, you're a professional journalist. You know that this is uh, this is the kind of the format that they use when they're trying to recycle. Um, and without really doing anything other than just picking up someone else's story and running with it. Um, it's not, it's not, it's yeah, basically it and, 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 and James, what James says, and in Variety's case, they should know better. And it's interesting. The other U S entertainment base outlets just left that, left that alone. They just didn't touch it. Right. And I was trying to think back, um, uh, I mean, AJ, you probably remember this better than I do. The number of times Eon have come out and actually made a statement about something in the news during filming. I'm trying to think, the one that stands out to me was when Halle Berry had that like bit of dust flying her eye in Cadiz, and the newspapers were saying like she had to go and have eye surgery or something. So they actually came out and made a statement, mm-hmm. made a statement about it. But there hasn't been too many times. Yeah, but I think it's interesting that as Bill works out expertly, you know, the way the former words is interesting to read. And I think then some news story then came out saying the delay is only a week. He'll be back. I think there was some statement issued privately to editors saying, look, it's not a disaster as we think. Um, But just to extrapolate a bit, yeah, there have been accidents. Any major production, uh, you know, I've been down to Pinewood last week, I think – that every major production has these things. If you take a snapshot picture, of course, the director could be slightly miffed with Daniel one day and vice versa. It doesn't mean anything. Any major production this scale will have odd moments. Uh, and the journalists capture it. They tell the story. And I think part of the problem, unfortunately, is it gets amplified by social media, by other outlets, dare I say it, by us. And you know, it it just is cannon fodder for news stories. Of course, we're hungry for information, but this stuff is, you know, it's 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 interesting, but I don't think it adds up. The bigger picture is this: there's too much at stake for this film to fail. Universal have taken it on. It's an MGM thing. They want to fatten up that studio, that last ailing studio on its legs. It's Daniel Craig's last Bond film, allegedly. It's Michael and Barbara have been doing this for so long. They need to get back in the saddle. I think when the film comes out next April, we'll go. We'll remember this and go, hey, what? You know, right. I, when when uh, Spectre was being released. There was the Sony hack, you know, with the script out there and everything, and it was absolute disaster. And I spoke to people at Eon then; they were they were not fussed. They said, "You know what? These things happen." Of course, they'd prefer it not to happen, but I think when they get announced the title, when they have another, hopefully slightly better organised press conference. It won't really matter, but I guess we watch it. We're diehard on fans. We watch every last bit on social media. The main public read their Daily Mail or they see their Lorraine GMTV report right. on the news, and that's the first awareness of a Bond film. Nobody knows that Rami Malik is the villain until they announce it. We know. We follow the rumours, but and press newspaper press stuff for movies is about getting the general public, not the Bond fans. Yes, you know, unfortunately. So the bigger picture is come April, when the next year, none of this will really matter. I, I say, of I course, agree, hopefully, but so, yeah. but so far, I remember, you know, I remember when Tomorrow Never Dies had to be made, had to be released before the stock stock sale of MGM stock. They all said it wasn't going to happen. It did. It was a relatively big hit. I mean, just a slightly couple of million dollars off uh, tomorrow of. Goldeneye, and no one remembered all the reports that were there, and that was pre-social media. So that's my bigger picture. Take it back. Yes, it's interesting. I like seeing Daniel Craig with the spear gun. I like seeing the Land Rovers. It's all good fun, but really, it doesn't mean anything because there's too much at stake. Too many people are too professional. If you speak to people at Universal and people at Eon, they're in control of it. Yeah, they they're things that go wrong. They're not in charge of every last thing. But I'd say just have a little bit of faith in the people that are doing it for so long. Talk about um, official announcements from Eon regarding things like this. Um, I I don't remember whether uh, anything was said about Daniel Craig and his NEOP during Spectre. Can can anyone remember that? No, I don't think it was. A Facebook friend of mine said, they should just cancel this movie, because he hated Spectre and he's just down on the whole thing. So they should just cancel this movie. And I said to him, I said, 
Daniel Craig could lose both arms and both legs and they'll slap on CGI arms and CGI legs at this point. That's yeah. Because, you know, because like AJ said, there's, you know, they've got to get this movie out. It's like, you know, it's, it, it would take basically a meteorite falling on Pinewood for them to cancel the movie. So it's like, you know, so, so him twisting his knee is not going to do anything. Just, it's just not. New, newsflash, Bond 25 is happening. Yeah. Can we have a, can we have CGI, CGI no arms and no legs and a beer belly? <laughs> and a beer belly, right. there we go. CGI beer belly, but no arms and no legs. Exactly. Plus, um, but, but CGI gloves on, on the arms that have been uh, removed. <laughs> the, gloves, the, glo- the gloves come on and off between shots, right? <laughs> yeah, on and off. I mean, we're all interested to hear. In, I mean, lots of friends of mine were saying, we haven't heard anything about the Bond film. They were gnashing their teeth about the title. And then all of a sudden we get all these daily reports. Everyone's going, it's a disaster. It's not. It may be, it may not be a disaster, but I don't think it, it's, a, it's not going to be allowed to be a disaster because they'll, they'll get never, it right. But it never is, AJ. Yeah, it never it has never been. It never is, you know? is it? I mean, we, exactly. we have all, every single time we get to this point, in a release, in a, in a yeah. or, or not even a release, but like this stage of the filming, this is where everyone's hungry for these little kind of yeah. little kernels of information, yeah. and and we we extrapolate exactly. whole narratives from yeah. tiny tiny little things, but they never well, amount to anything. I, I remember, you know, in 1997. When they're filming Tomorrow Never Dies, they were like, there was all this stuff. Oh, he's writing them. They're writing scenes, you know, just before the yeah. film, which apparently was true. Yeah. But like, oh, this is going to be awful. And I'm, I said, well, wait a minute. Like 20 years earlier, they like had 12 scripts or whatever it was. And, you know, it turned out okay. Now, I mean, here's the thing. It's like you can't assume it's going to be successful, but. You know, you, you can't assume it's not going to be successful either. It's like, you know, I've, I've personally, I've got to see proof that it's going to go down in flames. And and there certainly hasn't been anything like, you know, any proof that I've seen. Bill, you can, you can never tell. And, and everybody that works on films will always say this, whether it's a Bond film or anything else, they'll say, we have no idea when we're making this, if this is going to be good or bad. We, we shoot right. the scenes, we've seen the script, we think it's great. We, we film it the best that we can and it gets gets on edit and sometimes it gets released and it's terrible. Yep. And other times it gets put out. Yep. It's, it's magic. Well, There's no right. way and, Well, and a non-Bond example was Jaws where they had like all sorts of delays. Yeah. They couldn't get the shark to work right. They had, they went over budget, over scheduled because, you know, filming out on the water is like very hard. You know, it's like, it's tough, but you know. The, yeah. And the studio, the studio were going crazy on that. You know, they were like, you know, you're so over budget on this. You need to bring this in. And everyone thought it was going to be a, a, a disaster. It was his second film. Yep. So, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable that people get nervous at, the, at these things. I don't believe with all of the, the machinery behind this that we'll get a bad film. I mean, I'm going to say something relatively controversial here. I don't think that there is a bad like a bad Bond film. Like there's, there's, there's some truly great Bond films and there's some Bond films that aren't as good as the others, but they're not, they're not genuinely, there's no real turkeys in there, right? I agree. Like, I, I, mean, I mean, we always joke about Die Another Day and, yeah, no, I, I totally no. agree. I think that we're firstly we're Bond fans, so we're we're predisposed to like them, and even the ones that are less good, we have our guilty f- f- favorites and our guilty stuff, and the ones that are really sometimes revered some people don't like them i know there's a bunch of people bill and i know one person particularly who can't stand daniel craig as james bond but you know uh, but you know there's lots of people that love him there's lots of you know it's a curate's egg sometimes and i think you know we all pick our favorites i for example like the bond films that people tend not to like you know quantum of solace and spectre i think there's great value in them and there are a few ones that i like less like thunderball i slightly find boring i'm sorry heretical of right. me I'm with but, you, you know but but there we go it's one of these things but there's a there's a good there's a good film in in thunderbolt yeah um, if you chopped yeah. half but i get why people like their favorites there are all sorts yeah, exactly. of different opinions exactly yeah i mean i i was about to say you mentioned quantum 
like in the first 20 minutes, I really didn't like it. And particularly the scene where he kills the guy, lets him bleed out, whatever. It's like, I'm not sure I like this. But then you had the, the opera scene and that, that saved it. Yep. It's like, oh, okay. And, th- and then it kind of like established an equilibrium. And then I finally went back a few years later and watched it. It's like, I realized the part I didn't like took up less time than I realized. It's just when you, you know, when you first see it, it's your, your perception is all, it, it can be messed up. Quantum is having a slow rehabilitation. Quantum of Solace is having a slow rehabilitation amongst fans in general. But, you know, the the point is, is that no one, as as Ben said, there's no bad problem. There's films we like less and films we prefer more. But we're all here because we kind of like a James Bond film when it comes out. So with with Quantum of Solace, when it came out, I saw that. And obviously we're coming off the back of Casino, uh, which was... I think, to be honest, probably still my, my oh God, I hate to say this guy, but my favourite Bond film. Um, and there were high expectations and I didn't really particularly rate it when it came out. And then... Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's the reason it suffered so much because it was directly after Casino and uh, people were expecting more of the same and it was it was a very, very different film in many respects. But... but, but um, then- yeah, I mean, I think this is the thing. It's a totally shifted film. And I got divorced in 2016, <laughs> and I loved that movie after that. I, it's, it's a, can I say that is a divorce movie? Uh, I was like, yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally into this. Yeah, I totally relate to, to Bond in this now. Dark. And also, and also just one more thought from my standpoint. You know, if Michael G. Wilson had not said it takes right. place literally an hour, then, then it's like, you know, you just say, well, it happens a short while later. Yeah, that's fine. You know, <laughs> when you say literally an hour, that then makes you're expecting it. expecting Casino Royale too. Yeah, right? I think that's a problem. Right. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you, and when they, you know, and when they have these continuity things that don't match up, it's like, wait, it's literally an hour. What, you can't you, yeah. I, I don't Bill, know. We, really I, I, I mean, it's my fa- one of my favorite uh, issues with that is that uh, literally an hour after Daniel uh, throws throws White into the back of the car, it's two thousand and six, and then suddenly it's two thousand eight. Two thousand and eight. And it's a different suit. Different car. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and a different suit. A different, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and Mathis is like gone from being sweated to living yeah. in a villa with his girlfriend that MI6 bought for him. Like, uh, what? An hour ago. <laughs> Here's what I find. Uh, here's what I find funny about Bond fans, right? We we pour over these continuity mistakes in the '60s. There are massive mistakes from between You Only Live Twice and On a Majesty's Secret Service. Two different Blofelds. They've met but not met. But all of that passes completely without comment. The bad special effects. There's really bad special effects in the early Bond movies. No one ever <laughs> mentions the terrible projection in Thunder in Thunderball in the fight on the Disco Volante. We absolutely accept that. The, the bad acting, the bad accents, the dubbing. We absolutely never question that. Connery's disappearing Japanese makeup. Well, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. In, in terms of the bad dubbing, that's part of the charm. Yeah. Kai, Kai, Cairo. I mean, it's like <laughs> two Bond fans can be like standing next to each other. Kai, we'll Cairo. And the other I absolutely accept that, Bill. We, it's part of the charm. But maybe in 20 years' time, that charm will accrue to these these slightly uh, less good things about the current Bond films. Because I, I love the way they're so particular about now, but 30 years later, they never even question it. It's the dichotomy and double standards, I guess, of being a Bond fan. You One time you accept it. Hang on a minute. That invitation has 2008 written on it, if you pause it and it really examine Yeah, but, I mean, to throw an excuse in, um, for fans to hang on to in though in that era there was no home video so if you saw it in the theater and it was out of circulation right and then the next one came out a year later the you know it's only as good oh, as your course. memory of seeing I, it that one or two times I, of course the theater, i'm saying right? it's a different so, age yes a different age would go and and the thing is it was like that on television as well because oh we can't get the actor we'll just recast the role 
I'm actually talking about younger fans who first see a Bond film on DVD now. And their, their, their mentality is to pick apart the continuities now, but completely obscure, excuse the continuities from before. And I, I think that's fine. I mean, I think it is the charm, but I'm saying, in a way, what I'd say is let's, let's have that good for will for what they do now. I do, because I, I want to enjoy a Bond film. I don't really want to spend hours picking it apart of what I do. You know, and people that hate the Bond film, I say, how many times have you seen it? I've seen it 27. I own the tin plate. I, then you don't really hate it, do you? You're just gnashing against right. the wind. Why don't you say, look, I, don't, I like it less. I don't like this bit, but I'm there on opening day. I'm going to watch it and just enjoy it, celebrate it a little bit more than gnash one's teeth. I guess it's a glass half empty, glass half full person, you know? That's a really interesting thing you should have said there, AG. I had a conversation the other day with uh, somebody about Last Von Trier, and uh, they were like, so you don't like Lars von Trier as a director? And I was like, yeah, well, you know, when I saw, <laughs> I just reeled off every film that I'd seen of his. And they were like, yeah, you must really hate this guy yeah, considering exactly. you've seen pretty much everything he's ever made. Well, that was the um, old radio, the radio shot jocks always complain is the best listeners, the most avid listeners, the ones that hate them. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and, it's, so, and yeah. fandom around the world, Superman, Marvel, DC, it's a place where they always say fandom is people where gathered together to discuss something they hate, you know. That's, that's I guess, what fandom is <laughs> all, in all, fan, all walks of fandom, you know. A quick non-Bond example, I was reading this this morning, like there's a fan edit of uh, Avengers Endgame where they took out Captain Marvel. Like, why? I mean, why did you do that? But somebody felt so energized by this thought, they actually did all the work involved with re-editing the film. Well, they, I, as someone who's had to do that lately, uh, I don't envy their efforts. <laughs> <laughs> If I can just add one more historical moment, I think I, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast. So, like going all the way back to Doctor No, on the very first day of filming, they they were a half day behind because Jack Lord was late. And you know, back in those days, of course, going from Los Angeles to Jamaica was probably like probably an ordeal. Um, yeah. And you know, there was this book yeah. by Film Finances, a very limited edition book. And they reproduced a lot of the memos and they listed some of the things that had caused delay. So it's like. That was a doctor now. It's happened yeah. since day one of the franchise, to put yep. it that way. Um, Bill, uh, what, what was the reason for uh, Jack Ward's delay? He was supposed to, apparently, he was supposed to have arrived two days before mm. filming, and he arrived the morning of filming, but by the time he actually got there, the light had changed. Right. Of course, now they just use, use CGI, but, you know, like he got there at midday, and he was supposed to be there at, like, first thing in the right, morning. Right, So the yeah. sun had shifted, and the light was different. Yeah. That's interesting. And and. And plus, at that time of the year, the, the weather can be iffy, you know, in the in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So there were like some weather delays, um, things like that. Terrence Young had a big chunk of his salary impounded by film finances, um, which he was not happy with. And they reproduced the memo where he wrote the letter talking about why he was unhappy. And, and, and actually, film finances, they, for the uninitiated, they do completion bonds. It's like, OK, we will provide emergency financing. And they actually took control of the film in post-production, not during filming, but in post-production. They also took control of Tom Jones, which also turned out pretty well. Um, so just the fact that they took control obviously didn't affect the final product. But, you know, it was a sign that it was a somewhat troubled production. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, the very first one, yeah. So straight yeah. off the bat, we've got, we've got these... Issues, if you want to call them that. Right. So like in From Russia With Love, you know, Terrence Young and Ted Moore are in a helicopter accident and almost drowned. It's like, you know, nothing like that's happening at Bond 25. Oh, hell, God. Can you imagine if Daniel Craig went down in a helicopter in a lake <laughs> and he had to <laughs> swim to the surface? I mean, the, you know. The, yeah, the first time a field day with that. Right. I mean, I love the fact that, you know, in, uh, in From Russia With Love, they just went, Let's just keep going. Put my, wrap my arm up in something. Just keep, keep, keep going. Well, and a few months ago, I did a post like, "What if Twitter existed in the early days of the Bond franchise?" <laughs> it's like they cast who? 
<laughs> Bill, that would be amazing if it had done because it, someone should redo sort of Twitter posts from 1961 or 62 because it would be amazing to see the kind of you know the world that we've has become. You know, I mean, it's- somebody should do it. Somebody should just make a make a, a, a Twitter account for um, for, for early Bond movies. And just things that are going wrong. It <laughs> sounds like a job for you. Yeah. You know, when they cast Connery, they cast who? The guy's got thin and hair and bad teeth. Tattoos? What the hell? The guy's a milkman, for God's sake. No, all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some uh, I was I was uh, chatting with uh, my my flatmate. Um, well, sorry, I shouldn't really call him my flatmate. Uh, he's a the guy who's allowing me to live in his flat. Um, and uh, we were looking at some Connery pictures from uh, nineteen sixty two, and uh, looking at the, the books that he had in his his um, his apartment. It's a very interesting thing just to sort of see what an esoteric uh, guy that Connery actually was back uh, back then. Uh, Lilith was one of them. Um, this this comes from the fact that uh, he and I, uh, Matt, the guy that I live with, is um, with whom I live, sure I should say, um, is a, is a watch expert and who who helped has helped me considerably in my uh, Bond watch exploration. Um, and we were looking at a photograph of uh, him in in his flat on Getty Images, which was uh, marked. I think 1950 something, and we were looking at Bond's, uh, oh, Connery's wristwatch, and um, he said, "Well, Lilith wasn't even put out until 1962." <laughs> 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 he's actually he's actually looking at the books on the shelf behind Connery. Uh, that's that's just how um, how how uh, great a researcher Matt really is. Um, but yeah. Uh, but, but Connery is a, is, is a very interesting dude uh, in terms of what, what he was actually into in, in those earlier days. Absolutely. I mean, he was a very well-read, he was a very well-read guy, wasn't he? And 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 enjoyed reading. And he was a director in the theatre in the sixties, and um, funded plays, and you know produced plays, most notably Yasmin Reza's Art. So he's he's done a lot of work in the theatre uh, on and behind the scenes. He he contributed to National Youth Theatre, and um, of course, you know, funds. does a lot of work with charity, mate. But he does yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> he, he'll come back for a fee, you know. AJ, speaking of like, you know, public perceptions um, not necessarily being accurate about people, Hmm. was there anybody, you know, when you were researching, I know we've all been researching things for years, but when you were putting together your book, was there anybody connected to the franchise that was completely different to how either you or, you know, us as a group of Bond fans would see them? It's funny, when Matthew and I were researching the book, we had high hopes from interviewing certain people and sort of mediocre hopes from viewing other people. And sometimes the least expected people gave you great insight. For example, an example of this, not that we had an expectation, but we found that uh, someone like uh, Pierce Rosen, who we interviewed, was very open with us and very easygoing with us. We'd been chasing for ages, and he gave us a very detailed interview of his circumstances with Bond, before Bond, talking about the 1981 Foyer Eyes premiere, talking about his 1986 near miss with uh, James Bond when Timothy Dalton was subsequently cast. And he was very open and, and erudite as well. Um, having said that, we then spoke to people like Vijay Amritraj, who you know, you wouldn't think would say much, but he was a friend of Bro- Cubby Broccoli's for some time. He observed the family a lot and gave some real good insights into Roger Moore. They were UNICEF ambassadors, and he had a real sort of character insight into the family, which was quite surprising and interesting. And uh, yeah, there's lots of people who we spoke to who, you know, Sam Mendes for our Spectre chapter gave us real insight and real in, in fact, what he talked about a Bond film could hold true for any of the 
Bond 25. Particularly nice was his analogy of writers on a Bond film. He said they're more like football players. You know, you play a centre-half for this position, you've got two defenders there, and if they, if you have to replace them, you know, you substitute them. They're tired, they can't do everything, and that's fine. He said in a football game, you wouldn't complain about a substitution. So on a Bond film, when you get a new writer in, they're there for a different flavour, they add something different. It was a great analogy, which immediately understood. And of course, he explains that the other writers understand as well. So Sam Mendes was really insightful about the process of making a Bond film in general. And I think the process is true of making any major movie. I'm lucky enough, but in my other life, I'm involved in movie finance and go to see other movies being made. And it's the same. You could go to the set of The Avengers and you'll see a director on the phone for half an hour not doing anything. So a lot of times you'll see slight altercations or line dialogue changes. And that's normal. That's the lingual frank for major movie making. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we were really lucky to a lot of people got with the project and understood it. Um, and we were lucky. But I'd say Sam Mendes gave some really good insight, not just about his films, but directing a major franchise movie in general. Um, <clears throat> just to add on that, um, in 2011 or so, the Wall Street Journal has like a Saturday art section. They had an article by Scott Z. Burns, who, of course, we now know the name of because of Bond 25. And he talked about what it's like to be a, a writer on just any movie. And it's like, you know, you kind of have to check your ego at the door because, you know, actors like to change lines and, you know, things just change. It's, it's always in flux. I mean, it, it was a very interesting article. Yeah. Well, I think Ben 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 is a screenwriter yeah. as well, and he knows that um, you know uh, m- m- <clears throat> movie making and writing is about structure and setup. So dialogue changes are last things to be done. So when I hear they're changing the dialogue, that happens all the time. For example, when you shoot in a location, that location has to be booked and set up months ago. So when people talk about quote unquote rewriting, there's only a limit to what they can rewrite. Um, all of these things are relatively set in stone. Of course, the blocking on set, but generally, it's it's not going to be that much of a quote unquote rewrite. What what the person on the ground thinks of a rewrite, um, and so a lot of these things you take with a pinch of salt. They they've they've had to plan these things for ages, and of course, they can have last minute rethinks as they often talk about, but structurally it's pretty much the same film they conceived of and i think that's the thing that happens in any movie it's it's, it's structurally it's the same product i think um just coming thank you aj for the plug by the way um, it's true coming back to what both both aj and, and bill have said in terms of screenwriting um yeah you you whatever you write you have to you write for yourself and you let it go um because it does change. And quite a lot of the things that I've done is, have actually been polishes of other people's work as well. So um, I'm very cognizant of that. I'm- yeah. And I also think there's a lot of things that people don't understand about the writing process. For example, yeah, no Bond script has begun without Michael and Barbara sort of having a viewpoint on what, where they want to go, what they want to do. Then they sit down with writers and those writers come up with something and it's a collaborative process. Oftentimes, ideas and set pieces in the Bond film have been pre-written for many films. Again, researching Some Kind of Hero, we found that the car chase that we see in Spectre was written for the unreleased 1991 Timothy Dalton movie by William Osborne and William Davis. And there's lots of things there. And in a press junket, what can people say? Oh, this was written on a on a hopper of ideas. I think Purvis, Neil Purvis and Robert Wade don't get the credit that is due because while they're seen as you know the workhorses, they, they're firstly they're great in demand screenwriters from other film directors, from Robert Rodriguez to you know um, um, I think Lars von Trier and Nicholas Wein, Winding Refn want them, and they they are in demand for things other. They've had SSGB, the Len Dayton adaptation, and when they get to work on a Bond film, they really know they're Fleming. They really know their stuff. They know their Bond history. And sometimes decisions are made that they take the blame for that aren't necessarily in their hands. So I think a lot is un, un, un misunderstood about the writing process, again, of not just a Bond film, any major movie or franchise these days. 
Well, just <clears throat> just another example. There's a guy who's doing a biography of Ernest Lehman, who was like one of the greatest screenwriters of the 20th century. Yeah. And he shares little bits and, you know, because he's still researching the book. And apparently Lehman said something about when you're a screenwriter, you're essentially coming up with a blueprint for somebody else's vision, meaning the director. And like the one person yeah. he felt that was different was when he worked with Robert Wise on, you know, West Side Story and The Sound of Music and other films. Um, uh, and I thought that was interesting. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm going to be like really interested when when the when he finally gets this book out because it sounds like he's still deep in research. Yeah. But he shares little bits on Twitter, so I find it very interesting. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing. Of course, he wrote North by Northwest with Hitchcock. But I think the other thing about movie modern movie making is this: the auteur theory, the idea that the director is control, has always been, I think, poppy. No one involved in the movie industry will agree with that. It's the most collaborative art form in the world, from producing to writing to directing to the art house to the art direction, from costume design. The stuntmen come up with ideas. We know this in a Bond film. Of course, there's a central theme and a content, a written spine by the writers, but it's really a collaborative process. So I don't think even the directors that they hire, who are slightly more accomplished these days, they don't get final cut. They don't get things that a normal director would get. No, it's you're, you're absolutely right, AJ. It's it's you know long long gone are the days of um, you know the Kubricks of, of, of the world necessarily, and even then, um, Kubrick, whilst he whilst he was uh, arguably an auteur, um, you still you, it's still a massively collaborative process. Uh, you, we don't there isn't another art form out there. I don't think that. But, um, yeah. Really and that. when people go on press junkets and talking about Bond films, they talk about it in a way that can be understood normally and is good for them. They're not going to say, well, we had an idea that we reused. We had a song that we reused. That rarely comes out in the general public <laughs> thing because it looks and sounds bad. But really, that's what art is. When yeah. someone says, oh, I took 10 minutes to write a song, it doesn't mean they took 10 minutes worth of effort. Mm. They've been coddling away in their brains for 20 years. And then they it came out in that form. So I think to try and talk about the process of art is like dancing about architecture and movie making is no different especially we said that last week aj about um fleming writing a, a novel in six yeah. weeks and um, he might have he might have put a first draft out in that time but we all know that it yeah. was uh, something that had been ruminating on for, for for a long period of time and then had several drafts exactly so well and if and if you've ever seen the manuscript, you can tell how drastically it got revised because he was doing it the old-fashioned way, actually marking it up. Mm. I mean, I've I've seen a few of those manuscripts. I mean, it's it's you know he did he just didn't like bang it out and oh I got a book you know just Try it. Try it. and and that's why right that's why the man with the golden gun novel is so rough because he didn't get the chance to really do his you know. The kind of revisions he normally But did. even mm. that, Bill, I'd say bad, so less accomplished Ian Fleming in The Man with the Golden Gun is way better than a lot of writers in their first blush, I think. He still had that wonderful journalistic style, that precision, that pith in his writing, that observation. Um, I like that novel. But again, yes, it wasn't finessed the way it could be. And as he himself said, I'm running out of puff. Yeah, I think with The Man with the Golden Gun, one of its strengths is that it's set in Jamaica and I think that all of Fleming's works when they go to Jamaica his love for the island and for the island and the lifestyle that he has there really comes out so um, I, I think that works very very well for him yeah and, and I re and I reread the novel in the last year and um, you know basically it starts off really strong and then there's this kind of like lull in the middle and then you know once Felix shows up then it you know the momentum gets going again and I'm not a fan of this book. I hate to say this, but like I would, I would have preferred it's, it. It's, it is not his strongest book. What I'm saying is there are chunks of it, though, that are interesting. Oh, yeah. No, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I think that yeah. where, he's, um, where he sees his first encounter, Scaramanga, is, is, uh, is fantastic. There's some really good scene setting going the on. The bomb being um, brainwashed opening. I think – I yes. guess. The Bond brainwashed opening, I think, is spectacular yeah. and right. easily hey, hey. make a film at any point. <laughs> yeah, know, I I, it's it's amazing that they haven't used it to date, really. They could have used it yeah. in Skyfall. You, yeah, but to be, yes, to be exactly. honest with you, 
to be honest with you guys, I would, I would, I would really love it. Genuinely, and there is an alternate universe out there where this is the case, um, where we ended on twice, and rather than finding Vladivostok on a piece of toilet paper, um, he just lives out his days on an island with Kissy, and it's uh, it's all good. I, 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 I would like that to be the ending for Bond, really. Well, here's a bit of fan speculation. They talked about James Bond dying at the end of this film. I think if they did it, it would be sort of from Russia with love, pitched to the wine red floor, and you launch the new Bond Mm. with the brainwashing sequence from the man with the golden gun. Uh, That would be fantastic to introduce, Mm. um, you know, um, whoever they will get to play the next James Bond, you know. Of course it won't happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know. Well, we don't we don't need to do plastic surgery anymore because we have the gene replacement technology from Dino the Day. Well, can I say something here that will? Uh, I I love Die Another Day. I think it's a fantastic bomb movie, and I think apart from the dodgy special effects in one sequence, and apart from a little bit of rewriting in Iceland, I think it's a very entertaining, fun Bond movie. Absolutely silly, absolutely ludicrous, right. um, you know, and it's great. I even like the Madonna song. How's that? Because in the film, in the context, it works. You know, with the titles, I think it works. But I know it's meant to be the worst James Bond film ever made. Oh, no, sorry, isn't that Quantum of Solace? Oh, no, sorry, isn't that Spectre? You know, uh, but I liked I've got a soft spot in my heart for Die Another Day. You know, sorry. I reckon about half of it's okay. Maybe it's down to a third. Maybe it's down to a third. I'm not, uh, but yeah. it's good. It's good to uh, good to uh, talk to somebody who will stand up for it, though. So, uh, one of my favourites yeah, is no, the man absolutely. with the golden gun, AJ. So, uh, I I, uh, I take. Well, some I like that, that one as well. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I like it a lot. You know, well, you know, we've got we've we've got to be individual. I thought, you know, of course. Well, look, I grew up in a time when everyone was telling me that Roger Moore was a terrible James Bond and. Octopussy when it was coming out was mm. a terrible Bond film and wait till Never Say Never Again comes out and how good it will be and it was sort of written by fan clubs and fan pages and of course it happened and I don't think anyone says that anymore so the the Bond Ascenti who tell us what to think aren't always right in that, and I include myself in that that's why I try and keep my views to things because we all have our point of view we've all got our point of view and I, I like listening to people who who have their own thing you know there are still fans who believe Roger Moore is the worst James Bond ever. Just letting you know, but not me. But I'm just, oh, I'm just know, saying, they're out there. Bill, 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 we know a lot of them because they're your HMS yes. col- colleagues. I know a lot right. of them, they, and that's fine as well. They're, they're generation, and it's great. It's fantastic. But I'm saying that now that old adage, that old thing, doesn't really work. But you know, plus chance, we've all got to have our little favourites and our less, you know, less with the novels as well. I get why people don't like the man with the golden gun as much, you know, and I, I get that. But you know, at the end of the day, it's pizza. It's still good, you know, even if poor pizza is good pizza, you know. Well, well, one of them, and he's a dear friend of mine. He like he refused to buy any of the Roger Moore home videos he releases. He just says he's that's not James Bond. I'm not buying it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you know? Do you know, Bill? I I actually started out uh, a bit like that when I was starting to get the Bond films on VHS, and uh, but. In the end, in the end, I just um, I stopped resisting, and you know you, you can you can enjoy all of them for for some reason or other. You know you, you may may prefer different eras or others. I'm 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 sorry, guys. Come on, Dave, like and Bill. There 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 this 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 situation where you're going. Well, you know they're not the you know they're, they're not that bad. They're not that bad. They're bloody amazing. Some of them are really solidly great Bond movies, and I and I grew up on this guy. I mean, I I love Roger, and I'll I'll, I'll be first put my hand up for him. I was co- I was copied in on this joint big email, and somebody said that our man Flint was more realistic than Moonraker, and I thought, oh come on, and so like so I wouldn't let it go. I said. So at what point then did uh, <laughs> at what point at what point did Bond talk to a porpoise in Moonraker? He says, "What are you talking about?" 
I said, well, you, you said our man Flint, or actually, I guess it was the second one. In like it was Flint. more realistic, and it's like, in like, in like Flint. Flint. In like and it's Flint. my favorite talking, movie, baby. He, he's talking to a porpoise. Woo, woo. And, you know, and it's like, oh, and by the way, he, like, wrote a book about talking to porpoises. So it's just, in any case, in like Flint is like Moonraker on a lesser budget. <laughs> he goes into space and there's a fight in outer space and all this, except, you know, the budget's like way, way less. <laughs> um, I mean, anyway. But I think, I think things like Moonraker, I think Moonraker is a big chocolate cake of a movie. It doesn't matter if it's less realistic. It's enjoyable. It's big. It's got Ken Adam. It's John Barry. It's it's the last, if you like, hurrah for that kind of scale, scale and size of Bond film. And we all remember it for fun. You see it in a cinema now with with a bunch of young people in audience. They love it. It's inter- entertaining for mostly the right way, some of the wrong ways, but it's a massive entertaining movie that we all remember. Of course, it's got moments of silliness. It's a James Bond film, you know, enjoy it, embrace the silliness. Well, and I, mm. and I have a first, co- uh, first copy of the first draft and it was like, oh my God, it's just like, it's even bigger than what we ended up getting. You know, it's like Bond with the jetpack. Yeah. Not not just one mini jet, but two, yeah. his and hers. And all this stuff, it's like, yeah. good yeah. grief. It's just like, yeah. I did, I did an article for the old HMSS site called The Bond Too Big for 007 about that, about that script. But it's amazing. Yeah. Bill, that script... That script is a great example of what I was saying about ideas that were written for one film and reused. Moonraker fueled half the Bond films later on. A remote control car was in it. They had a device in the designing exhibition there. But they had, you know, the sequence where Bond has afternoon tea with Drax was going to be on the boat in Rio Harbor where Bond is then keelhauled. And instead of afternoon tea, it was English breakfast, Britain's un- indisputed contribution to Western civilization, the Acrostar Jets. Similarly, the World Is Not Enough script by Michael France, sorry, the GoldenEye script by Michael France has so many sequences that found themselves in later Bond films. Um, the the third Dalton film by William Alter and William Davis has sequences that are in Skyfall and, and in, you know, subsequent Bond films. There's a lot of Bond films are so packed with stuff that gets used later on. And of course, those writers don't get credit, but that's just the way it is. Again, Indiana Jones and Marvel, even Blade Runner 2049 uses ideas from the original screenplay. That's the kind of movable feast of a contemporary franchise cinema screenplay but yeah you're right you're right bill moonrake that original script fueled half the bomb films afterwards on that bombshell as i used to say <laughs> i think probably wraps it up for this week doesn't it gentlemen i'd say so yeah. thank you so much chaps it was fun absolutely and um i got a little i was gonna say a little treat because I thought Mark was going to be on this week, but he's going to do next week. Mm. Um, I found a little thing um, online, as you do. I mean, it doesn't matter how much you cover Bond, there's always something that you don't know, right? Oh, yeah. And um, on May the 3rd, 1987, at the London Palladium, there was a presentation of an all-synth backing track of A View to a Kill performed on stage by Shirley Bassey. Oh, <laughs> so, so that's what's going this atrocious earworm will, will play us out <laughs> on this podcast hey choice for you is the view to a kill between the shades assassination 